Once again, I think it bears uh, mentioning that if you just look around at how many people are in church tonight, you can see that it's been a long time since we've seen something quite like this. The last time I remember was 1991. Um, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but there is another car that is parked this time on the other side in front of the ATM, which the ATM, it's a great place to park, but it's not our property. And uh, the owners of that bank will indeed tow the car away. And we don't have any um, say-so over that. So uh, there's a, a car parked at the ATM over across the street. It needs to be uh, moved. And then um, the men's retreat that was slated for uh, this weekend is going to be postponed um, for, for pretty obvious reasons. Uh, Bill Gallatin, our speaker, uh, is not coming in um, this weekend. He does want to be with his family, as probably many others do as well. So uh, we'll give you further information on uh, that rescheduled event. Tonight we're preempting our study in 2 Corinthians. Again, for obvious reasons, our nation is in shock. In many sections, our nation is scared. And our nation is possibly as the pundits are discussing on the brink of war. We're at a very critical crossroads. We would have to be naive not to understand that. And so what we're doing with, for our part with this message is after the message is done tonight, we're going to be uploading this to a satellite after we reproduce it so that this will be tomorrow morning's show all over the country. And where the Calvary Connection plays, as well as converting it into MP3 format on our website so that anybody could access the website tomorrow morning and email this message as an MP3 file to anyone. Why don't we begin with prayer? Lord, prayer has been the order of the day, the last couple of days. People have prayed in quarters where we never thought that they would be able to without some kind of a, a ruckus being made or a demonstration ensuing. Lord, for that we are grateful. At the same time, we join the reaction of fear and anger and shock and all of the emotions that are very natural at a time like this. We pray, Lord, for your grace. We pray that we might move beyond the emotion of the moment, though entering in fully with it, but moving beyond it to clear, concise, biblical worldview and solid answers that bring confidence. Help us become your agents of peace, of change during this time. Lord, I pray that your people, of all people, would have discernment and understand our times and know how to move in them, not be overtaken by them. Help us become people who move the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, Fox News Network 
one of the news broadcasters said that America has been shaken, his words, shaken, and that New York is rocked to its soul. You know what has happened. Everybody in the world by now knows exactly what has happened, but for purpose of this study for the future and this broadcast, let's just recap the fact that Tuesday morning, for us that's yesterday morning, four planes bound for California, tanks full of fuel were hijacked and were effectively converted from mass transportation vehicles into weapons. The people aboard those airplanes held hostage. Two of those airplanes flown directly into the World Trade Center since that complex has collapsed. One, it seems designed for the White House, but the men on the board, one of the aircraft in Washington, somehow were involved in causing that to go down before the White House. It struck the Pentagon, and then another aircraft that crashed in the area of southwest Pennsylvania that it seems, at least it was talked about, uh, was bound perhaps for Sears Tower or, as some speculate, Air Force One. That did shake us. We are, we are shaken to our foundations. The foundation of our freedom has been shaken. The foundation of our government has been shaken. And for some, the entire future is shaken. I begin tonight with a quote from the Talmud, one of the Jewish holy books, in a section called the Sanhedrin, number 37a, where it says, One who destroys someone's life is as if he destroys a whole world. And one who builds up a soul is as if he saved a whole world. Something else happened yesterday that was very unprecedented. We spoke about it yesterday at our prayer meeting at 12 noon here in the sanctuary and last evening when about 2,000 people showed up for a prayer meeting at 7 o'clock. And that is that both houses of Congress, you saw it on the news, were on the steps of the Capitol, and in unison they sang, God bless America. It was hard not to weep at that moment. And then they paused and they prayed together. And there were no discussions on the news whether you can or cannot pray in a public building at that point. And nobody discussed whether prayer in schools was allowed or unconstitutional. Believe me, people prayed in schools all over this country unashamedly pray. Then today, um, I watched as both houses convened, and I heard some of the remarks, and we noticed that both houses opened up in, in prayer, humble, contrite, um, heartfelt prayer. And I was particularly interested as I listened to John Lloyd Ogilvie, the chaplain for the United States Senate, 
articulate the sentiments before God in that setting. Tonight, I also understand, before I came down out of the office, I had the news on, I've been kind of tracing it all day long, that tonight they're also holding the Congress an all-night prayer vigil. Now, when was the last time that happened? Our president last evening called what has happened a monumental battle against good and evil. And you heard him quote Psalm 22 with, with great confidence, speaking for the nation. To the world, he said, as David did, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Clearly, times like this, they define us, yes, but at first they deflate us. And what they do is they cause all of us and tonight is the evidence, and last night was the evidence, to go beyond ourselves, beyond our strength, and to call out to God and look for answers beyond ourselves. I've been interviewed yesterday and today by newspapers, television agencies, radio stations, and of course they all asked, now these are mostly secular arenas, they ask the God questions, the evil questions, the good questions. What do we do now? How do we pray? How do we respond? And today I was interviewed by a television station. And uh, the host at the end said, Pastor Skip, would you lead us all in a word of prayer? I don't remember being asked to pray for a secular media ever. But it was an opportunity to do so. We are looking for answers for all of this. Who is not? But I'll tell you what, we want a lot more than information. You have that. You've seen the same images that I have the last couple of days. They are forever ingrained in our hearts and minds. We'll never forget what happened yesterday, ever. We have information, though more is coming in. What we really want and need is inspiration. Solid answers, biblical answers, the big picture, something more for our future. Now, again, we still exactly don't know what has happened yet. Each day and each hour is unfolding new information. But tonight, I hope to offer another perspective, a needed perspective, in part God's perspective, in part a biblical worldview to what has happened in our response. And I hope that it will provide not only answers but encouragement for those of us who need it in days to come. Psalm 11, would you turn there with me? It's a short psalm, it's a psalm for this hour. Psalm 11 has only seven verses in it. You notice, as I do, the psalm opens up just like we do tonight in music, with worship. For the sake of perspective, it says, To the chief musician, a psalm of David, In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on a string, that they may shoot secretly. 
at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. But the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire and brimstone and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, or just, equitable. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. Boy, that sounds frighteningly contemporary, doesn't it? Those could be our words. Now, we do understand something fundamentally. History is cyclic. It, it seems to appear in patterns and then reappear in the same patterns. Why is that? Well, it's because basically, simply, the heart of mankind is evil. It has the capacity for evil. It has the capacity for making right choices and wrong choices. So whether it's the 1940s and we're dealing with Adolf Hitler killing six million Jews or we're dealing with a mother who would drown her children or Jeffrey Dahmer who would kill and eat his victims or somebody who would fly airplanes into public places, we understand something very fundamental. All Christians do. The depravity of the human heart. The heart of man is corrupt. Uh, years ago, there was uh, an era in our history in our, I mean world history. This is before American history existed. From between about 480s to 1000 AD, called the Dark Ages, or the, the, the times of, of darkness, uh, medieval ages, etc. And that was eclipsed by what was called the Age of Enlightenment. We're educated now. We don't live in the Dark Ages anymore. We're now enlightened. Now, looking back at that through the lens of yesterday, we wonder how enlightened we have become as human beings. Yes, we are more educated. Yes, we are more refined on one hand. But on the other hand, we have succeeded in tailor-making very educated and refined criminals. Because though that has changed, society has changed, the accoutrements of our society have changed. The heart of man has not changed. It's still exactly the same. The question tonight, in lieu of this psalm, and in lieu of what has happened yesterday, is where do your foundations lie? What is unshakable in your life tonight? Psalm 11 basically has two main themes. The shaky foundations of society. That's what David is harping about in the first few verses. Versus the certain foundations of sovereignty. There's a contrast between what he sees on the earth around him. It's a very uh, fear-filled world versus what he sees or what he chooses by faith to see going on in heaven. Let's begin in verse 1 tonight and consider not only this psalm and David's experience, but what has happened in our country 
the shaky foundations of society. Now notice how he begins with faith and yet a question. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. He's saying, in other words, Lord, I trust you. That's the statement I'm going to make. However, there's this little voice inside me, whether it's, it's asked by people around me or it just comes from David's own personality that says, man, this world is so messed up, I got to get out of here. It's gone nuts. I want to seek some form of refuge, some place where I'm going to be safe. Now, let me tell you the background. It's pretty amazing how it parallels our own. When David wrote this psalm, we believe it was a time of national emergency, national corruption, politically, because Saul was the king and Saul was uh, inadvertently murdering people, and, but especially trying to get at David. David really was the key issue. But there was corruption politically in his world. And there was terrorism in David's world. When David lived and when this psalm was written, there was a group of people called the Philistines who had invaded from the north and settled in five principal cities in Israel along the western southern seaboard. Ashdod, Ashkelon, Gaza, Gath and Ekron. These were strongholds where the Philistines lodged and they staged raids we would call them today terrorist attacks into the villages and towns of Israel. They'd burn farms, they would kill people. And so the people of Israel, including David, were living in fear, fear for their future. You've got a corrupt political thing going on as well as terrorism that abounded in the nation. And so at issue in David's heart is, is where is my refuge? Where will I go? for stability, for hope. In whom will I trust? Will I, will I stay put and trust in the Lord no matter what? Or will I seek my own self-refuge? Will I flee as a bird? There are times when events happen in the world. This is not the first, it will not be the last. But when the event happens, we like David ask the same question. Where is this all going? What is going on in the world? It's crazy. It's nuts. And we, we say, today the world has changed. In a sense, it has for our nation. In another sense, it's the same stuff that has gone on for thousands of years. If you look at it historically, 8,000 formal treaties of peace have been broken in the last 3,100 years. That's the way of man. But it causes us to pause and wonder and ask deep questions. Ann Landers, who writes a column and has for many years, is now an institution in America. She has received, or the Ann Landers column has received thousands, tens of thousands of letters every month. And they say the predominant feature of the people writing the letters is fear. Even before this crisis, National surveys taken of Americans saw that there was this growing sense of fear for the future. 
optimism was being banished in the minds of many people. The sense of vulnerability was creeping upon us, and more so since yesterday. Now look at verse 3. Here's the heart of the concern. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? You can hear, can you not, a, a tone of despair in his voice? If the foundations, hashatot is the Hebrew word, the pillars upon which we rest for security, the moral pillars, it is sometimes translated, the settled order, the moral order, the moral support, when that is corroded, what do good people do? Peterson, in his translation called The Message, frames that in this way. When the bottom has dropped out of the country, good people don't have a chance. Yesterday at the World Trade Center, the very infrastructures of the buildings themselves were loosed and came towering down, destroying lives. The pillars were unsettled, lives were destroyed, and the, the deep question, if, if the very things that are meant to protect us no longer protect us, what do we do? That's the issue here. There's an example in David's life, and we think that this was perhaps what was going on when David wrote the psalm. David was being hunted by King Saul. That's the corrupt political government going on. Jonathan, however, was David's close friend. He was also the son of the king. And Jonathan informed David, hey, my dad's after you to kill you. There is corruption. It's widespread. He'll do anything to put out your life. And so David fled with his men to a nearby city, a village called Nob, N-O-B. We read it and would say Nob. There was a high priest in Nob by the name of Ahimelech. He offers David service, he offers David food, David begs for bread, and the priest even takes some of the showbread to feed David and his men. Saul is informed that David has escaped, where he went, and how Ahimelech helped David and his men in their journey away from Saul. So Saul orders the terrorism, the destruction of not only Ahimelech, but of all the priests of the Jewish religion who lived at Nob. Now, none of Saul's men would do it. They had a sense of morality. They feared God, and they said, we're not going to touch God's anointed. But there was a terrorist among the group named Doeg. And Doeg volunteered, and he slaughtered 85 of the priests, innocent men, wives, women, children. Killed them all, massacred them. And you can hear it in David's voice. That's the government. That's what's designed to protect me. This is my nation. This is my world. When the pillars are destroyed, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? There's a sense of panic, fear, which again is amazingly contemporary tonight. Fear is a natural response. We saw it yesterday. We saw people on the cameras running for cover, running for their lives, just scattering, getting under cars, moving, not knowing where to go. It's a natural response. It's built into us. We're afraid. 
of what could attack us, what could hurt us. I had a friend call me yesterday, incidentally, when this was all going on in New York. He called me from Chicago. He was on an American Airlines flight. And they were taxiing, and then they pulled back and ordered the evacuation of everyone from all the planes as the airspaces were shut down. And he was on the phone describing to me the event. And then he described to me the faces of the people in the panic. He said, Skip, you wouldn't believe it. People are, are running out, out of here, getting out of the airport. And he says, I'm, I'm seeing men pushing children and women away. It's fear. It's, it's that response of, I don't know about you, but I got to get out of here. Now, often there is an immediate terror we wonder, well, what's next? What could happen next? And then there's a deep-seated fear that I think everyone here can relate to if you have children. What about my kids, my babies? I'm raising them in this world. What's going to happen to them? What are the guarantees of their future if these foundations are destroyed? However, the Bible does say, does it not, do not fear? Did not Jesus say, do not fear? That is a lifestyle, a practice of, of, of fear, apart from knowing that there is a God who is in control, is wrong. Now listen to how Jesus put it in one of his sayings. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. You can kill a, a person's body, but you cannot destroy a person's soul. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. You know, Jesus was always known, was he not, for just the irreducible minimum, right? Just clarity. We may not like to hear it like that, but that's it. That's reality right there. Now, let me just say, if you do not know the Lord... If you do not have eternal hope, if you're not banking on something other than just this life, you should fear. You ought to fear. I can't stand here and say to people, don't worry, this is never going to happen again. Because after seeing yesterday's precision assault, by every indication, it's going to happen again. We don't know where, we don't know when. This is the big thing. And... And we are realizing, and I'm hearing it on news reports, you are too, that, you know, at one, at, at one time in history, we knew exactly who the enemy was. We don't know that anymore. We're not dealing with nations anymore, but individuals. And so we don't even know where to focus our fears. We're afraid, but we don't know of whom. Because the enemy doesn't identify itself. After the Cold War... When our previous enemies were weakened, there was a shift in the world. Let me just tell you what's been happening. For five decades up to that point, there was relative stability in the world because of a doctrine known as MAD, Mutually Assured Destruction. It was based upon three principles that no longer are true. Principle number one, there are only two powers, two megapowers, two superpowers. Second, both are in relative balance of each other in terms of the ability to destroy. Three, both are rational in thought. Those are no longer true today. 
There are well over 12 nations that are third world nations that have nuclear capabilities. Keep in mind, some of these are nations whose ideology doesn't even closely resemble our ideology of what is good and right and fair. Rational? Well, how do you fight against someone who believes that if you lose, you win? Completely turned around. Some of the, well, it seems all of the suicide bombers, whether what happened yesterday or in Israel and other parts of the world, are steeped in an ideology whereby because they are doing this deed, they will be immediately, automatically catapulted into heaven. They're going to go to heaven for doing that. So... We are aware now that such people can be absolutely anywhere in the world. And if there's a time to be afraid about your future, it's now. And that's why I ask you, what foundation are you on tonight? Do you know Christ? Do you have eternal assurance? Because let me tell you, the question for us tonight is not if we'll die, but when. Every one of us, let's not be naive, I think we know that. Let's now look at something more deeply in this. There's the shaky foundations of society, but now look at the certain foundations of sovereignty. The Lord, he's now the subject of the next part of the psalm. The Lord, and let's put our focus now on him this evening. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked... And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Notice where God sits in verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. What was David speaking of? Not the temple in Jerusalem. That wasn't built yet. Heaven. God has the vantage point of control and visibility. We often forget, too often, not just times like this, but so often in daily life, that God is still on the throne. In the year that King Uzziah died, said Isaiah, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, and his train filled the temple, and he was glorious. Even in that time of national apostasy and catastrophe, God was still on the throne. Notice what God sees also, verse 4. The Lord's throne is in heaven, his eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. Proverbs 15, the Bible says that the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. Well, if that's true, if God is so sovereign, if God is so on his throne, if God is so able to see everything that's happened, then, then how could this happen, what has happened in America? There's two answers to that. Number one, God did not do this. So a person has free will and decides to pull out a gun and hurt somebody or beat somebody up or drive a plane. You're going to blame God? God never created evil. But God created people. There's the problem. He created people with a very unique capability of choice, of volition. And you know what a power that is? 
We have the freedom to choose. So God didn't create evil. He created the possibility of evil, and man actualized the possibility by making the choice. Now, I'll tell you why God had to do that. Because you could not have a world, you could not have a universe where people have genuine freedom, including the freedom to love, including the freedom to do good, unless they had the opposite freedom to do evil. That possibility has to exist for there to be freedom. Second, well, before we get into that, you know, I've shared this with people, and then people automatically say, well, then why did God give us free will? And how, how, why would you, how could a person, how could a human being do that? How could that happen? How, how does a person get it into his mind, I'm going to get in an airplane and I'm going to go do that? Well, I could ask you the same question, but I could say, how could Adolf Hitler kill six million Jews in an attempt to perform genocide to the whole Jewish nation? He wanted to kill every Jew, annihilate every Jew. And how, do, how does a mother, how could she think to drown five children? It's the same answer. The heart of man is wicked. Jeremiah 17.9 says that. The depravity of man. What was the first crime committed in the Bible? Murder. Cain killed Abel. What does Romans say, Romans 3 say about man? His, his feet are swift to shed blood. That's why God had to create and institute human government. And create also death as a sentence to avert people from committing such crimes. And when you add to that this, a satanic deception whereby if you kill people you go automatically to heaven, you increase the motivation. So number one, God didn't create evil. Number two, because everybody dies. Now, I, I, I'm going to say something that I want you just to pull back from the emotion of this for a moment. We should be emotionally involved. I am. I have been in a number of catastrophes. I've stood with people in a number of catastrophes, but I want you to pull back from the emotion for a moment and realize something that we all realize somewhere, but we... We don't live in the reality. Every person dies. God being on the throne does not prevent people from dying. We have known that. Ever since the fall of man, when sin was introduced, death became a fact of life. I am saddened. I am deeply saddened by what has happened. What has happened to those people in New York and in Philadelphia and in Washington was not anything that wasn't going to happen to them. And it's not anything that's not going to happen to you and I. You know that you're going to die, I'm going to die. You may die by cancer or a heart attack or by a plane crash or by some debilitating disease, but we're all going there, right? It is appointed unto every man once to die, unless the Lord comes back for you, and we all, every generation hopes for that. But, but putting that aside, we're all going there. So the issue isn't, are we going to die or not? The issue for us tonight as survivors is where will you live forever? You can die and not go to hell. 
And that's why we're told to go everywhere and preach the gospel to people. So that they wouldn't have to face that. Listen, if you want to take away the fear of death, then have faith in Christ. And you'll be able to say, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? But Paul said clearly in 1 Corinthians 15, If we have hope in this life only, we are of all men most pitiable. Take away the fear of death and put your faith solidly in the one who conquered death. Because you're going to die. And you may die in a terrorist plane crash. Or you might die of cancer or something else, but you can be assured of eternity. That's a solid foundation. By the way, that is the reason that worship and fellowship is so important. Because what it does when we gather in times like last night and we air out our prayers before God and we talk about it and we hug each other and we weep and we worship is it changes our perspective. If you watch CNN and Fox News Network, you're going to feel like I very beat up, very worn out. Don't you feel that way? I do. But when I gather in the sanctuary with God's people, I get a whole different perspective of clear thinking, an eternal perspective. It happened to Asaph in Psalm 73 we mentioned yesterday at our prayer service. Asaph said, you know, Lord, I know you're God and all that religious stuff. However, I almost lost it completely. My feet almost slipped when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, that the wicked are getting away with things. How could you let this happen, God? Why? Why evil if you're so good? And as he continued his remorse and his remarks he comes to a certain place and he says until I went into the sanctuary and I understood their end when I understood the end of the wicked they're really not going to succeed they haven't succeeded it changed my perspective look at verse 5 this is not only where God sits and what God sees but this is how God sifts, and here is hope for us tonight. But the Lord, it says, tests the righteous. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire, and brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. There's a contrast between the righteous and the unrighteous here. Notice it says God tests the righteous. As a believer, God tests us. The word means to examine, to test the genuineness of something. Believer, let me, let me assure you of something tonight. Christian, let me assure you of something tonight. Your Father in heaven will never allow anything to come to your life unless he first peruses it and then approves it and then it comes to you. It's never an accident with you. You'll never hear God go, oops. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see that one. He approves everything and then he lets it come into our lives as a believer. 
Oh, really, Skip? He does. Why would God allow any evil to come to me? Please, don't be that naive. You have your best moments when you are tested. You have your best moments in life when you are under adversity. Shake the hand. Spend time with those who have been tested in this life. Severely, deeply examine their character. And you'll be able to see the difference. Somebody once said that adversity is the diamond dust whereby heaven polishes its finest jewels. P.T. Forsythe once said, we shouldn't pray for pain's removal, but for pain's conversion. Let it change us. It's changing this nation. So it will hone you. Or... If the adversity is severe enough, it will home you, H-O-M-E you, take you home. If you die as a Christian, if you go out and die in an accident, or somebody blows you up, where are you going to go? You're going to go where? Okay, let's see, heaven. No pain, no sorrow, no remembrance of former things, all the bad memories, peace, Joy, absolute righteousness. Listen, if, if, if we cry at your funeral, and we will, it'll be because we miss you. We're not going to feel sorry for you. But for the unbeliever, upon the wicked, verse 6, he will rain coals, fire, brimstone, burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. That's all the metaphorical psalm speak for judgment. That's the preview for the wicked. Now, you know, some people are angry when you talk about the judgment of God, when God would execute judgment upon the wicked, except at times like yesterday. Then we say, where's the justice? Where's the equity? What you saw angered you, did it not? Think of what God sees. Every individual in that carnage, God knows intimately. God saw the wicked perpetrated against people. And he sees it every single day, every single generation. He saw what happened in World War II with all the individuals and all of the evil perpetrated in the world. And there will be a sense of justice. Um, is there a place for anger? Is there a place for anger for the Christian? What's the answer to that? Absolutely yes. So if you're feeling, boy, just this whole thing angers me, this sin angers me, I feel so guilty that I got angry. Well, the Bible gives you a commandment in Ephesians. Be angry and sin not. Okay, that's, that's the qualifying part. <laughs> so if you go out and punch somebody because you're angry, you broke the second part of that. Well, God told me to be angry, and I was. Yeah, but he said sin not. That anger has to be tempered also with righteousness. Certainly, then, God, in creating man in his own image, has given us the capability for anger. And there's a time when anger should be expressed. Jesus expressed anger. Jesus took tables in the temple and overturned them and whipped people. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon this little child. Jesus stood in front of the Pharisees and didn't say, I disagree. He said, Woe unto you, hypocrites! You whitewashed sepulchers. And there is a place to be angry. 
At what? At sin. At sinful acts of men. At sinful men. At mass murderers. We do, I believe, in light of that, need to enforce international law and justice. They're talking about that, the Senate, the President. The nation, any nation, needs to protect innocent people from aggressors. That's how you show love. That's how you protect a nation. At the same time, and where the and sin not can kind of come into play here, is that we must never take personal vengeance. We must always remember vengeance belongs to the Lord. And I'm never one for advocating we go out and just nuke anybody we feel that cross-eyes us the wrong way. But a nation who has had war perpetrated against it should respond swiftly and justly as a nation, not as an individual. We have to be careful with our attitude. The Bible says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. That's on a personal level. But rather give place to wrath, for it is written... Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. Folks, that suicide bomber, those suicide bombers have received their just reward already. Understand that. The Bible promises that people who don't know Christ will be plunged into an eternity apart from God. So that case is settled. Their justice is meted out. So we can relate to David, can we not? Foundations are shaken, destroyed. What does the righteous do? The righteous turns toward God where there are fixed values and principles and hope. And there will be equity and justice. And we must learn to look at things apart from just fleshly carnage but on an eternal perspective. What can the righteous do? Well, the righteous can do what the righteous have done. We can pray. We can give blood. We can give money. We can go in teams that are organized to help out when they ask for it. There are many ways. But ultimately, we can trust in the Lord. You know, it's interesting. When uh, we visit Israel, we sometimes look at archaeological digs. And uh, as we dig through the ancient ruins of Israeli towns, you know what we see evidence of? Idolatry in many cases. We see a nation that was once under God that eventually, over time, turned from God. And you see the evidences of idolatry in their midst. What will happen if two, three thousand more years of history pass and we get dug up by archaeologists? One author presents this. Suppose one day our civilization were destroyed and our cities laid waste. Suppose in 20,000 years... An archaeologist from another time were poking around in the ruins of your city. If he should dig up just one penny, he would know how much he would know very much about us. The coin, a blend of metals, would tell him that we were miners and we understood the science of metallurgy. By the perfect circular shape of the coin, he would deduce that we understood geometry. The wheat on the back of the penny would tell him that we were a great agricultural society, that our fine crops were a major source of our wealth. The date on the face of the coin would show him that we understood arithmetic, that we had a calendar. The portrait of Lincoln would mark us as artists who had an advanced culture. The words United States would let him know that we were a federated group, 
of local communities bound together by a strong central government. The phrase, e pluribus unum, would tell him that we were scholars who knew foreign languages. The word liberty on the face of the penny would let the archaeologists know that our country sought to guarantee freedom for every man. And finally, the phrase, in God we trust, would confirm that we had a moral law. It would let him know that we had grown strong and mighty with God leading. And then, considering the penny, he would have to wonder, why did that civilization go astray? We're a blessed nation under God. Times like this brings us to our knees. But we must confess, in many ways, our country has grown arrogant, fat, by the prosperity that God has blessed us with. And God warned Israel of that. All of this to serve as a wake-up call for Christians, for believers, to build our lives on something solid, as Jesus said, not on shifting sand, but on the rock, so that when the storm comes, it's unshakable. Where are your foundations? What is unshakable in your life? Remember what the Talmud said as we began with, one who destroys someone's life is as if he destroys a whole world, and one who builds up a soul is as if he saved a whole world. Tonight, let's be concerned personally about the victims. Let's pray for their survival as they're pulling bodies out. Let's pray for the victims' families. Let's pray for wisdom for our country like we did last night, and we should continue to do so every day, even when this is over with. Let us pray for the soul of our nation. Let's pray for ourselves that our priorities will be right. Let's pray corporately as a group, and then we're going to split up for a few moments and pray and, and close in song. Lord, we as a nation, we as a small group of people gathered tonight as a part of this nation, ask you to forgive us of our sins. Extend your mercy upon us, O Lord. You have blessed us mightily. The foundation of this country was built squarely upon biblical principles from which we have strayed through our debates over these issues. Forgive us. Bring humility and repentance to this nation. Restore us, O Lord. Restore us as a nation under God. Father, we do pray concertedly in unity for those who are still victims of the carnage in those towers in New York and Manhattan. Make the recovery expedient, Lord. May there be the absolute minimum of dead among them. Preserve life. Lord, send those who bring hope, healing, mercy, we pray, Lord, for our president, the cabinet, as they've been meeting all day and continue to meet tonight. Formulate a plan with other nations. Oh, Lord, give them guidance. I pray that they would seek guidance from you. I pray that each decision would be bathed in prayer. We all pray for that. 
We thank you, Lord, for the hope. Else we would be of all men most pitiable. Lord, we pray that this event would change us in the right way. Lord, finally, in this assembly tonight, as we've gathered in humility from all over this city and this state, we pray, Lord, that you would sift and search even through this congregation as we in our own hearts examine where our foundations really are lying. Are we placing all of our hope and our stock in this world? Are we placing all of our hope and stock in this world plus our own good works that we've done certain things that we think would just merit heaven? Or are we placing all of our stock in the good God who, seeing the plight of man as sinners by nature and by choice, formulated a plan of rescue whereby all of the pain and sin would be meted out upon Jesus Christ and in receiving him as Savior of our sin, we would have everlasting life given to us, granted freely to us, that would create in us a change whereby we would reach out to others to help, love, and preach the same gospel. As we are praying right now in this room, if you have gathered tonight with us, you are uncertain about your future God has been something that you have placed on your convenient shelf. You have not lived for him. He has not occupied your thoughts. In the truest sense of the word, you couldn't call yourself up to this point a true follower of Christ. But by God's grace, that's changing right now. You have seen in the last couple of days your need to experience God's peace and God's love. If that's true of you, I congratulate your honesty. We're so glad you've come. But you need to do something according to the Bible. You need to receive a gift that's been extended to you. It will not be forced upon you. God will honor your choice. But he's extending it to you eternal life, everlasting life. You can receive the finished work of Jesus Christ for you that he did on the cross. And you can receive everlasting life. And in doing so, you are saying, I am going to turn my life over to him. I'm going to turn from my past, my sin, my selfishness, my self-absorption. I'm going to live for him. you want to do that, and I hope you do, while we're praying that you do, I want you to slip your hand up right here, right now, and just say yes to Christ. Pray for me, Skip. I want to do that. God bless you, and you, and you, and you, a couple of you, several of you, right over here on the side and in the back. Great time to get honest with God, right over here in the aisle. Anybody else? Slip it up high. 
toward the back, in the back, a couple of you. Anybody else? Right up here. On the side. Father, our prayer is for these to experience a transformation in the midst of the catastrophe in our nation. Bring a triumph as you you do, Lord. Life comes from death. The death of Christ brings everlasting life to anybody who would receive. Lord, we're seeing hope tonight, birthed right before our eyes. Thank you for these who have raised their hands. Lord, Show them the full extent of your love is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, right where you're seated, without getting up, turn to someone. Just break up in a group of two, at the most three, and pray for some of the things that we've touched on tonight. Pray for the victims. Pray for the government leaders. Just for a moment, and then we're going to all, um, in unity, as a show of unity, we're going to sing together and and close. Just 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 break up for just a couple of moments and pray with each other. <laughs>